Hey there, welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. You've made it this far, which earns you the right to take an hour with smart, likable journalists who know what happened this week and what you should know about what happened this week. We've got Publicola editor and publisher Erica Barnett with us again. Erica, good to have you. Welcome. Thanks, Bill. GeekWire's contributing editor and Cairo contributor, Mike Lewis. Mike, welcome back. Thank you. Good to be here. And News Tribune columnist and opinion editor, Matt Driscoll. Welcome back, Matt. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me. Good to see all of you. We, I can see them because we're streaming the show on YouTube and Facebook, which you can find when you search KUOW Public Radio. I actually asked the panelists to come in person here with me to the studio, but they could not get through the snowdrift that accumulated this week. Uh, Matt's car battery froze, I think, and uh, Erica's motorcycle's not great on ice. So that's what happens when it's when it's May, but it feels like uh, February. So. <laughs> Thanks for being home. I made all that up. <laughs> Is that okay that I make stuff up on a news program? Is it Look, my uh, my Mini Cooper works great in the uh, snow. Oh. I just, you know, don't want you slandering uh my Mini, but uh but otherwise, you know. So, as <laughs> totally I told accurate. You, as I told you, I just don't come to Seattle on principle. I just stay in Tacoma. It's a matter it, it had nothing to do with the weather. Yeah, it's ethical, ethics based. Uh, I respect that. Um, so uh, let's get into the news this week. Microsoft this week said it's going to help its employees with expenses if they have to travel to get an abortion or to get gender affirming care. This is a response to possible new restrictions on health care services coming from the U.S. Supreme Court and other jurisdictions. Uh, Amazon has done something kind of similar. Erica, I'll start with you. Is this a no-brainer for these companies? Is this a, a risky decision? Well, absolutely. It's an, it's a no-brainer for companies that are headquartered in places like Seattle, um, you know, that want to uh, project that they have a progressive ethos. Um, but I, I do think that the actual sort of meaningfulness of this is a totally separate question. Um, whether it is meaningful for Microsoft, Amazon, you know, Yelp, et cetera, not headquartered here, of course, but all these big companies to offer to reimburse for, for these uh, for these medical treatments, and including abortion um, for their employees who, by and large, can already afford to travel. Um, you know, from from states where they are choosing to locate, like Texas, um, you know, it seems to me that a more meaningful action would be something along the lines of, um, I don't know, moving out of those states or providing funding for uh, abortion funds in those states for poor and working class women who actually, you know, really could benefit probably more from the money. And, and, I, and I also just want to say very briefly that uh, most abortions in the United States, and I think an increasing number, are not going to be surgical abortions. There will always be a need for those. But I think this also kind of re- reflects a lack of understanding of the current state of both abortion care and also the current state of the, the next front on this sort of war on women uh, on, on abortion rights. It's going to be not so much, you know, restricting people. I mean, it will be, but it's going to be in addition to restricting people from traveling. It's going to be restricting people from getting medication abortions in the mail and suing women and suing people who aid and abet women. And so I also think, you know, lobbying on that front uh, would be more effective by these companies than than this step, which which is meaningful, but relatively small in, in the scheme of things. Yeah, of course, you're referring to uh, so-called abortion pills that are uh, used and approved for, I believe it's uh, abortion up to 10 weeks 
uh, at this point. Um, I, I want to turn to Mike at GeekWire. Of course, you've written about this, uh, you know, about from, from a business perspective. Sh- should Amazon and Microsoft and other companies expect a retaliation from Republican politicians like Florida's did to Disney? Perhaps. I think that the when it comes to Texas, for example, that retaliation can be from private citizens, right? I mean, the Texas law essentially turns private citizens into uh, bounty hunting vigilantes. Uh, when it comes to abortion, you could report someone, file a civil lawsuit against them and win up to $10,000 for anyone who is, this isn't against the person who is actually undergoing a procedure. This is against anyone who aids in the the pathway toward undergoing a procedure. So the Texas law, which I think is going to have its own constitutional review, is a really interesting point because it puts, say, HP, which is relocated to Texas, for example, Hewlett Packard, does it put their human resources department at risk or perhaps Amazon's, depending on what Amazon's level of human resource uh, is there and also can this can this sort of civil suit be uh, cross state lines? It's going to be, I think, something that I'm I would have zero doubt that Amazon, Microsoft, HP, Tesla, uh, these companies, uh, human resources departments are probably looking at right now. Matt, I know this is less your uh, beat than than Mike's or Erica's. Do you have uh, information or even just a, a question about uh, the work your your colleagues here are doing on this topic? No, I mean I'm I'm fascinated to, to hear their takes, and I I think I think Erica's point is exactly right in, in terms of the, the kind of the politics of this move for for local companies. I mean I think it is a meaningful gesture because I think gestures like this are meaningful, but uh, you know I don't think there's a lot of risk for Washington-based companies in this, and I think it's pretty clearly, uh, you know, uh, progressive uh, signaling to their employees and their workforce that they that they are supportive of these things, while maybe being less interested in doing some things like, uh, you know, actually moving out of uh, out of states where, uh, you know, the a change in in row would have uh, more significant uh, implications. And you know, to Mike's point, I think I think that's going to be fascinating to play out how these companies headquartered in these more conservative states, you know, as you, Bill, as you mentioned, the, the Disney situation with the with some of Florida's uh, anti-LGBTQ legislation, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's a really interesting thing to navigate from a, from a corporate perspective. I mean, I think, you know, we can sit here and we can say who's the right thing, but when you're the bean counters and, and, and all like that, and you're having to deal with these decisions, it, it puts them in a tough spot. And I, you know, I don't have uh, a lot of sympathy for them being put in a tough spot because I think there's pretty clearly a, a right way to navigate this and a wrong way to navigate it. But um, yeah, I, I think, uh, I think it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. And uh, for, you know, Washington based companies, I think it's important what they're doing, but uh, I, I'm not ready to, you know, uh, award them uh, humanitarian of the year for the, for these efforts. I think it's kind of the, the minimum they could do. And there's, you know, I think just a lot of, uh, a lot of political, uh, navigating going on with that. So what about people who use this tech? Are states going to be able to track money sent to abortion, you know, uh, aiders and abettors, abortion clinics, abortion funders through through payment apps, through GoFundMe? I think some of that is going to be determined, is going to be determined by the companies themselves. Remember, Apple famously fought to turn over information, cell phone information, uh, for the attack, I think, in San Bernardino, California. 
the terrorist attack in San Bernardino, California. And so I don't know. It's going to be up to these companies and how hard they want to push back on states that are going to be demanding this thing. And I would say, secondarily, it's one of the things that I think when when Eric was talking, this popped into my head. I, I think we're in an odd place where we are now so frequently depending on private companies uh, to do the work of government. Uh, we already depend heavily on philanthropies to do stuff that government maybe should be doing. And now we're in this situation where it's going to be uh, on something that was that was constitutional guarantee. It's going to be Amazon and Microsoft and these other big companies stepping in. And something about that seems seems the 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 tail wagging the dog here. It seems like that's I, well, I understand that Nefert is going to be entirely necessary. It seems like a bit of a shame that we're here. Erica, do you yeah, want to I, react to that? Yeah, I mean, I sure hope that they will take action, particularly the the payment companies. I mean, I I, I personally, you know, I, maybe I'll be proven you know horribly wrong on this, but I personally think that seems like more of a front in this war than the period trackers and things like that. I mean, I don't think you should be um, giving your information that you're know, giving medical information to Apple personally. I'm sorry, um, Erica, the period trackers like se- sexual health apps. Yeah, yeah. So that is that is, by the way, which Apple did not include on its health app for a very long time because all of its engineers were men and it didn't occur to them that people would want to track their um, their periods over the course of a menstrual cycle. Um, so that's specifically, it's not like sexual health broadly. It's it's that because the idea is that you could tell when people have pregnancies um, based on looking at that app and, you know, when they end pregnancies. I think payment software is going to be a lot more of a direct way of trying to intrude in people's, you know, information and trying to find out who's paying for abortions, you know, where the money is crossing state lines. Um but, you know, I mean, I, I also think that probably the attacks are going to be a lot more straightforward than that. They're going to be, you know, attacks on on doctors, on clinicians, on abortion funds in other states and on women directly, um, you know, before they get to the point of, of these highly technological, you know, subpoenas that uh, are being anticipated by, you know, and, and I think rightly, I mean, I think it's good to be paranoid on every front right now. But um, but I think that the uh, the actual attacks are going to be somewhat more direct. Uh, I want to keep talking about Amazon, uh, but in a different way, and and uh, and include some other companies here. But any any thing we haven't we, that we've left unsaid regarding our first topic, uh, response corporate responses to uh, we just had this uh, Texas Supreme Court ruling. Uh, they're, they're allowing the state to investigate parents of transgender youth for for child abuse. Companies are reacting to the possibility of of uh, abortion and other health care services being uh, very differently regulated state to state. Any uh, Anything else to comment for now? I, I would tell say, you, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead, Erica, that's fine. I, I will tell you, I mean, I, I know, you know, a lot of people who kind of work in um, in industries that, you know, are more portable than mine. And, um, and I think that if I were these companies, I'd be very worried about recruitment and about getting people to want to move to a place like Texas. I mean, Austin is great. Uh, love Austin, but you know it's still in the state where it, where it is an incredibly dangerous place to be trans, to have a trans child, to be a woman, a person who can get pregnant. So you know, I I would be very worried about that because a lot of people that I know, you know, with portable job opportunities or portable you know jobs, say they would not move to the South right now. And you know, and there's a lot of places in the South that have very high population growth, and I wonder if that's going to change. 
Yeah, I was going to say something along the same lines from a recruitment standpoint. The question is going to be, this is going to force, I think, in some ways, and a lot of companies are trying to walk back the remote working arrangements uh, that occurred during the pandemic. This is probably going to lock it down more permanently because it could be that someone who is willing to work for uh, Amazon, but unwilling to work for Amazon in Texas, for example, that person is going to be a remote employee, would be my guess, if that's a person that Amazon really wants to hire. And it's going to be interesting how the remote, the capacity for really effective remote work is going to play into all of this when com- when people decide they don't want to be recruited to a, to a state that uh, maybe has laws that they don't agree with. I'm glad you brought up the question of whether a job is portable, because that plays into our next topic. Uh, We have very different experiences for Amazon and and Starbucks on the topic of unionization. We've had a couple of dozen Starbucks stores nationwide voting to unionize, a couple in Seattle, most recently the Reserve Roastery on Capitol Hill. And workers at at hundreds of Starbucks stores have at least said they're going to organize, if not filed. At Amazon, it was a big deal when the union, a a Staten Island warehouse, their workers there voted yes to unionize. But that hasn't been repeated yet. In fact, there was a no vote on at a different smaller Staten Island warehouse. So uh, and and I, I say job portability, I think might be. It, it's very different experiences working at Starbucks and Amazon. But um, what do you want to say about that? Uh, Mike, I think, I think maybe GeekWire has covered this as well. What's the difference between those two unionization waves? It's a, there's a significant difference between the two. I mean, both have employees where, that have corporate uh, leaders who are concerned about unionization efforts and are pushing back strongly against those. The difference, of course, being that Yet uh, at a Starbucks, you're organizing, I don't know, 15, 20, 25 people uh, for your yes vote, which is a very different thing than trying to organize a a thousand people or more in a warehouse. Also, you have places like it isn't it is not necessarily preaching to the choir to organize a union in Seattle, but it's a significantly lower bar than some other places. Go to Bessemer, Alabama, where the union effort at an Amazon fulfillment center, what they call their warehouses, go to a Bessemer and find out how popular unions are there. And you're going to find a very different response than you're going to find at a, at a roastery in Capitol Hill. Hmm. And so you have a much more difficult thing from a number standpoint. And here's the thing that a lot of people forget about organizing in an Amazon warehouse. Amazon warehouses have notoriously high turnover rate. Some of them are, are exceeding 100% annually, uh, including the one uh, in Kent here, the large one here in Kent. That was right around 100% annually. When you have that, you don't have that many eligible voters because people are coming in, leaving, coming in, leaving, and you have to have been there a certain period of time. There's a lot of restrictions mm. as far as voting for a union. And so when you have this incredible turnover, Amazon is, has some baked-in factors that I think make it much easier to resist unions, the, where they set up uh, rural areas and the type of employment that it is, that makes it a lot harder to do that, I think, than a Starbucks. 
Yeah, I also think, I mean, to to expand on that point a little bit, I mean, I think that a lot of these Amazon warehouses in in rural areas, I mean, one of the one of the stories I was reading said that, you know, people are driving for an hour, hour and a half to take a four hour shift. I mean, you're talking about people for whom this is probably the best opportunity in their area. Mm. And when you have people in that situation, you know, as opposed to being in uh, in Seattle or, or in any city, really uh, working yep. as a barista. So I, I just I just think that you know the, the, the situations of the workers are so vastly different. Fifteen dollars an hour sounds like very little here in Seattle these days, but fifteen dollars an hour in Mississippi, you know, might be five dollars an hour more than working at the drive-through that's by your house. Yeah, I mean, I think that's I think it's exactly right. And I mean, listening to Mike and having kind of recently been involved in a unionization effort uh, with the with the News Tribune, I mean, I, I think. You know, and certainly it was the case for myself is there's a lot that goes into it. And I think Mike is exactly right on the numbers standpoint. When you when you look at a, a Starbucks location versus a, a warehouse, I mean, unionizing is not an easy thing. It takes a lot of work and there are sacrifices involved in that. Um, you know, it, it's time commitments. And when, when you're looking at warehouses where, you know, as Mike has pointed out, some of them have 100 percent turnover rates, uh, you know, the, the investment in the job. And to Erica's point, I think in a lot of situations, the you know, the, the, the money is certainly the, uh, the best opportunity, but you know, it's, it's, if you're, if you're working in a Amazon warehouse and you're viewing it as potentially a short-term thing and unionizing a thousand plus warehouse is going to require getting a vote over 50% and all the light work that goes into that. And then all, everything that comes after that in terms of negotiating a contract and you start throwing in some of the things, the subtle pushbacks that company do where they start, you know, withholding pay increases that other people are getting or withholding benefits that other people are getting that aren't unionizing. I mean, it's just, it's a lot to ask of folks. And so I, I'm not surprised at all to see that it's, uh, that it's been a much slower pace at some of these Amazon facilities compared to a Starbucks location, just simply because of the things that Mike and Erica have already spoken to. Yeah, I think Starbucks offered some higher compensation or benefits, but not at uh, store. They, they said, well, these stores that are unionizing, they're still, they've got to bargain all of that. And uh, that's a that's a pretty typical move in in these contract negotiations. Uh, you know, we, we, you see it in newspapers too, where uh, you know maybe a company will have some unionized shops and some shops that aren't unionized, and uh, you know they'll they'll start uh, increasing pay or increasing benefits at the at the non union shops, and they say, well, you have to negotiate this, and negotiating a contract can take a year or more. Um, so it's it's it's. It's kind of a subtle but effective uh, pressure. Point well, and Amazon did exactly that in the warehouses. Right. I mean, it raised its its minimum wage in the warehouses across the country and certainly in Bessemer, Alabama. And that does. I mean, if what you're remember, it's not just valuable to have a union. It's also pretty valuable to have the threat of a union because that can actually move the bar in a direction that makes employees when, at the point that they get the wages maybe they feel they deserve or the working conditions they feel they deserve, the need for a union starts diminishing pretty rapidly. One more thing on unionization. Amazon uh, this week said it uh, had fired two of the union organizers in Staten Island saying that that it had nothing to do with their unionizing. One of them was fired allegedly for not coming to work after his COVID-related leave ended, and the other, the Amazon said he didn't meet his productivity goals. But I assume those claims will be investigated, possibly litigated? Uh, I think without any question whatsoever. The timing uh, is is not ideal. It, it, I'm sorry, let's put, it, let's put that two ways. The timing is not ideal if you're the employee. 
the timing is ideal if you are Amazon and are trying to send a message uh, to a variety of warehouses around the country. It is, it's very difficult to delink the two. Now, I don't know whether those, what Amazon is saying about its rationale for doing so, it could be valid. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I do know that the timing is an accidental, certainly. And if you are an Amazon manager and you're hearing this from your your coworkers and the people that you are managing in a warehouse in Oklahoma, you're going to you're going to take very close take very close attention to this because this is something that is your effort to do this could put your own job long term on the line. Okay, well, you know where there is a shortage of employees. Local law enforcement. We're going to take that up as we continue here on the Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke, and you're figuring out what happened this week with, we got Mike Lewis there, you just heard, at GeekWire. We got uh, News Tribunes, Matt Driscoll, Public Cola's Erica Barnett. We're streaming the show on YouTube or Facebook, so watch us there by searching KUOW Public Radio, and we're going to be right back. You're listening to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. We don't have enough people, local law enforcement continues to tell us. The King County Sheriff's Office is looking to fill 172 positions, about 15% of its workforce. Some of that is due to the vaccine mandate. 27 commissioned employees were let go because they wouldn't take the vaccine. 20 more people chose to retire or resign. And the sheriff select, Patty Cole Tyndall, says the sheriff's office had big vacancies even before the mandate. One thing that worries me, keeps me up at night, is if our numbers continue to increase in terms of our commission vacancies, we are at risk of not being able to provide basic public safety. Last fall, the King County Council approved $4 million in hiring and retention bonuses. And this is a big discussion at the Seattle City Council right now. This week, a city council committee approved some measures to help hire more police officers, pay some relocation costs, pay for a national recruitment campaign, maybe recruitment incentives. The only committee member voting no was the budget chair, Teresa Mosqueda, who said the city's looking at a projected $35 million revenue gap next year. What is happening, Erica, to the drive to use fewer officers and more service providers instead? Well, there is a separate discussion about that that didn't get nearly as much coverage. I wrote about it a little bit and we'll be writing about it some more. But there is a separate discussion happening about how and whether um, it is going to be possible to take some of those those calls that are being responded to by police and move them over to civilian responders. Uh, The momentum of that has really, really shifted since 2020, when there was a real discussion happening about whether to reduce police funding and reduce the number of police. Um, The reduction has kind of happened on its own since then because of the attrition that Mm -hmm. you were talking about. It's, It's also happening at SPD. And um, SPD is saying that they are, you know, dangerously low on officers. Now the, the issue that has come up recently is basically, is it, is it possible to have enough information or do we have enough information at this point to know that it's safe to move some, some of those calls over to civilian responders and actually set up that civilian responder system. SPD says it's not safe, that we don't have enough information and they're doing a big detailed analysis of kind of what the risk of various call types is of severe impacts, like, you know, death, injury, things like that. And, uh, and and they say it's going to take a few more months to sort of sort that out. 
And I think that there aren't a lot of voices pushing back on that. And part of the reason is because that analysis never got done. And most of the changes that SPD are sorry that the city council and mayor made in the years following the protests of 2020 were were pretty cosmetic. I mean, they shifted a lot of money out of SPD. They created a new uh, 911 response system that is not in SPD, but it's basically sort of shifting money from one column to the other rather than making any real substantive changes. So the stuff has just been put on hold and now we have a new administration. And I think that the pandemic has really sort of changed the attitude of the public towards this question of whether we need more or fewer police, you know, and I think it's shifted specifically to, towards, you know, we need more police and you see that on the council too. There's almost consensus. Yeah. Um, so it's a very big shift. Big shift hey, uh, indeed. Yes. Bill, I've got a question for Erica. Uh I'd like to know if she could go through the entire list of 41,000 different types of calls. Oh, my God. 41,900. 41,000. I'm sorry. I dropped the 900. Uh, What? So I saw that reported. Do you have any insight into that, that 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 there is some claim that there is 41,000 different types of calls, not different calls, but different types of calls? that uh, that the SPD, that emergency services receives? Yeah, I don't know all the different sort of categories that they're using to break it down into that many call types. But I, I my, my take on that, you know, I've talked to SPD about it. And I think that they are, their response is, well, it's very complicated math. And, you know, okay, well, I, I'm not a mathematician, I'm not a statistician. So I can't speak to whether that's valid or not. But it does strike me that, you know, you have about 400,000 calls over the course of a year. And if there are 41,900, that means that there are, there, there, there are 10, you know, on average, there are 10 of each type of call in an, an entire year. And at a certain point, it does become a question of how useful is it to break it down to that level? I think that currently what they were working with before that was 300 different call types, and they're saying that's not enough to assess risk. But ultimately, I think this becomes a question of can statistics and can using math and statistical analysis really predict risk better than just trying a pilot program on a limited basis, which is what some council members are calling for, where civilian people, um, you know, maybe community service officers, um, maybe some new system actually answer some of those calls and see how it goes and start on the very low risk ones, the ones that, you know, pretty much agreed to be low risk and, and, and see how it goes in parallel with doing all this math and breaking it down to 40 1,900 different call types, because that that does feel a little ridiculous when you hear it. I also was kind of curious, uh, Erica, you followed this. I followed this uh, tangentially. I've read a lot about it, but I haven't actually covered it much. There are others. I mean, this is not a completely unknown territory, right? There are other cities. I know Fort Worth, I think, is one of the cities doing this that are experimenting with this sort of civilian, uh, enlisting civilians to handle some some types of calls that maybe do not always need police response. Do we have any data from any places, any other places that show whether or not this is actually working or is it too soon? I think in Denver, there is data. They have a program called STAR. And of course, there's a program, a small program in Eugene, Oregon called CAHOOTS that's been around for decades. Um, we do have data showing that it is effective. I would say the issue with that data is all these programs are slightly different. And some use what's called a co-responder approach where you have civilians, but cops go out with them too. 
And so the question then is, is that what SPD is talking about doing? Is that what the city council wants to do? Is that what the public wants to do? Or do they want an entirely civilianized response, which is what they were talking about, you know, in 2020? Um, and I think there is there's a little less data on that. But but this is this is not Seattle would not be a trailblazer on this stuff. Um, we would be following in in a lot of cities footsteps, you know, including Fort Worth, as you said, Houston, Austin, you know, a lot of other cities have, have been trying something like this for a long time. Well, speaking of other cities besides Seattle, Matt Driscoll of the News Tribune, you're there in Tacoma. And I'm curious how what this what's going on in Tacoma Pierce County compared to Seattle King County. Yeah, I, I feel like that's my 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 key selling point on on, on this show and other shows is I, I can come in and tell as a Tacoma man and tell you guys what it's like uh, thirty miles down down the road. Uh, but yeah, I mean a lot of a lot of the things that Eric and Mike discussed are, are, are pertinent here too, just kind of on a on a smaller scale, which is how it uh, how it tends to go. You know, to the co-responding uh, point, we, we do a little bit of that. Uh, you know, particularly related to homeless related issues. Uh, I don't think we probably do enough of it. Um, but, you know, in terms of the, the, the struggle to find and retain officers, that's very real down here. And, uh, you know, the, the, the conversation and the ebbs and flows of it are probably similar to what we've seen in Seattle. But again, just on a, on a smaller scale, I mean, a Tacoma Police Office, uh, Tacoma Police Department's offering, uh, you know, in total over, I think it's kind of a, a couple of year span, as much as $25,000 in, in lateral hire bonuses. Uh, the, the Pierce County Council just passed. Uh, some new money to offer $10,000 retention bonuses to Pierce County sheriffs. That's on top of the $15,000 bonuses they're already offering to, to, to attract people. You know, at, at the Pierce County Sheriff, we just wrote about this. My colleague, Josephine Peterson, uh, you know, they say they're down about 50, uh, 50 spots. Uh, they lost 34 last year, which was a high. They expect to lose 50 this year just from uh, attrition. And, you know, obviously there's some stuff going down here in Tacoma, Pierce County, for those following it with the with the Manny Ellis case and a lot of pushback for, you know, uh, police uh, police reform and, and those sorts of things. But I would say, in general, uh, you know, the calls to, uh, if we will, divest money away from 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 police departments and put them in other things has really, you know, it's still obviously very palpable in, in some corners, but community wide, I think we, I think that we're not talking about that as much because. Uh, you know, we're, we're experiencing and, you know, there's all sort of context you can put it in that compared it to the past. But I mean, overall, we're seeing increases in crime, noticeable increases in crime. People are seeing it. And so the conversation here politically is, is pretty unanimous on that point. I mean, even the, the Pierce County Council is a Democratic majority. And I mean, they were totally in favor of, uh, you know, these these bonuses and, and everything they've done to try to attract people to just describe it as a reality where, where we are right now. So uh, I think it has shifted. I think there is still some interest in uh, you know, kind of diverting some of those calls uh, that don't need to be police based into other areas. But, uh, you know, we're, we're in early stages of it here if we're there. And I'd say most public sentiment and the kind of sentiment of, of leadership is that we need to figure out a way to get more police officers and keep police officers. You know, after one of these new Seattle police officers arrests someone, then what happens? Well, this week we found out Seattle is going to prosecute more repeat criminal offenders instead of sending so many of them to treatment. Uh, Seattle's new city attorney, Ann Davison, asked the uh, these municipal court judges to uh, make that change. To improve safety for everyone in Seattle and to understand what we should be doing for these individuals caught in that cycle of crime. Erica, what's the... Um, 
what's the debate? Is there a live debate anymore? Is this a settled question uh, in the Senate? Well, the, I think this particular issue is a settled question. The, the request that she made to the King County, or sorry, to the uh, Seattle Municipal Court judges was that they not be allowed in community court anymore. And um, this is about 120 people. Um, of course, the list of actual individuals changes over time, but it's people who've committed more than 12 or been accused of more than 12 misdemeanors in the last five years um, and some other criteria. But uh, essentially community court, it's, it's not treatment. It's a therapeutic court option that sort of lets you um, as a defendant determine what your path is going to be. It includes community service and you can only do it four times. So um, essentially the judges, they back down because in this situation, the city attorney's office has a lot of leverage. They could have said, well, fine, we're just not going to participate in community court anymore. And Community court um, in its current incarnation is very new. It's only been around since 2020. And if uh, the city attorney's office shut it down, that would be the end of it. So I think in this situation for these people, this is you know essentially settled law, so to speak. But I think it speaks to an ongoing debate that's going to continue to happen between the city attorney's office, which wants to take a much more punitive approach to misdemeanors and particularly repeat misdemeanors like shoplifting, um, the, you know, uh, property damage, the kind of stuff that the city attorney's office deals with. And um, and the judges who are like, well, we don't have the capacity to take on every single case. And even if we did, the jail uh, has doesn't have the capacity to jail everybody. So I think there are, there are going to be a lot of pressure points where this is going to come to a head, you know, beyond this specific issue, which deals with a relatively small number of individuals. Right. Community court. Thank you. Community service, not not just not treatment necessarily. One more policing note before we take a break. Uh, as Seattle police were dealing with the Black Lives Matter protests a couple of summers ago and a, a police precinct was closing down. What was our mayor texting to her police chief? That's public information, but we don't have all that information because some of those messages got deleted. This week, the city reached a settlement with the Seattle Times over this. And uh, Erica, we're back to you again. What, 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 in brief, what did they basically agree to? In brief, what they agreed to was to pay the Seattle Times $200,000 in damages and to improve their public records process. The things that they agreed to, though, are things that they were supposed to be doing already, which are to retain text messages and um, to do trainings of employees to tell them, basically, you've got to retain your records. So the I would say, I mean, I haven't seen the actual conditions and terms of the settlement. The Seattle Times has not chosen to publish those and they're not available yet. But um, the way it's being described by the Times, it sounds like very, very modest, if any, improvements in the records process. And of course, we're still not seeing those emails and rather those text messages. I had six requests out for a lot of those messages um, during, you know, not just having to do with the protests, but during a whole period when all the messages were deleted about all kinds of things. And I have not seen a single text message from Jenny Durkin's phone in the two years since I filed those requests. So that is that is a very frustrating outcome, maybe unavoidable, but frustrating nonetheless. Yes. And Mike, no admission of wrongdoing on the city's part either. Yeah, yeah. This one, this is spectacularly irritating. My two most disliked phrases in court fight settlement stories are, quote, without admitting any wrongdoing or, quote, denying any liability, which is garbage, right? I mean, there's, it'd be hard, it's hard for me to put any other term to it. This is a former U.S. attorney who helped write the federal consent decree about Seattle police accountability 
and didn't know she was supposed to retain her text messages. I don't know. I don't know how to frame this in a manner uh, that is arable on radio, but it is it is implausible to me, to put it mildly, that this is that this is the outcome, and then implausible also that the settlement that was reached is essentially okay, we'll do what we're supposed to do now that the emergency is over, now that the liability of exposing these texts is done. And remember, it wasn't just Jenny Durkin, it was also Carmen Best. And it it is, to me, uh, deeply, deeply disappointing, to put it mildly, that this was the outcome. I will say one thing, though, that I I really appreciate the fact that the Seattle Times took this fight to the city. This is the, what everyone goes on about, corporate media and whatnot. I mean, sometimes actually having a little bit of heft and certainly having money to spend on the legal fight is pretty important. Now, this one didn't come out exactly the way I wanted to, but that fight absolutely needed to happen. And uh, in that respect, I'm pretty proud of the Seattle Times for pushing this one along as little as I like the denying any liability or not admitting wrongdoing. Yeah, someone was held responsible, and it was the taxpayers of the city of Seattle. Bingo. Uh, Matt, you're in Pierce County, which I remember had its own a different kind of message disclosure scandal. Yeah, I've I've been listening to this, uh, and I I, I wholeheartedly agree with everything uh, Mike just said in the words he he couldn't share that I I think I uh, echo in this case. But it is very reminiscent, and and just for some perspective for folks in in Seattle, it's it's very reminiscent of a fight down here in Pierce County, which uh, you know made it all its way to the Supreme Court and ended up taking seven years over a fight over uh, text messages on former uh, Pierce County prosecutor Mark Lindquist's phone, uh, also involved uh, the, the News Tribune. That was slightly different situation. That was on a personal phone, and those text messages were not uh, were not deleted. They were retained. Uh, but that fight took seven years, and it ended up costing taxpayers more than a million dollars to defend Mark Lindquist in that in that case. And eventually, the text messages did come to light, and it turns out they were. Uh, largely kind of petty and office squabbly and, and, and attempts to kind of undercut uh, some of the News Tribune's coverage. But, uh, you know, I mean, the lesson here in this is I think exactly what Mike and Erica have kind of already uh, articulated is that the, the, the repercussions of, of, of these sorts of violations just they're not enough to dissuade elected officials from abusing the laws. I mean, you know, the idea that Durkin didn't know that she was supposed to keep these texts uh, you know, the idea that public officials uh, think that they can use text messages on private phones and those uh, somehow be, uh, you know, not disclosable. I mean, it's just they, they know and they do it anyways. And then they have a bunch of lawyers that fight it to the death. And then at the end of the day, they don't end up admitting any wrongdoing and the taxpayers foot the bill. And it just happens time and time again. Matt Driscoll is at News Tribune, and uh, we'll talk about uh, Pierce County and King County's response to homelessness this week uh, after we take a short break on KUOW. I did just get a note from Susie who says, hey, Bill, we love watching Week in Review, but often, like today, YouTube doesn't have you live streaming. There's a waiting screen with a photo of you. We don't do Facebook. We like listening to you, but it's more fun to have a little party in our kitchen with you and your guests. Uh, sorry about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I have confirmation that it, that's not happening right now on, uh, on YouTube or Facebook today, some live stream problem. Uh, so luckily, you, you get to listen to people who can't say words on the radio that they wish they could say, but they have a lot of good, other good uh, information for you. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. Come right back with Week in Review.
KUOW's Week in Review with Publicola's Erica Barnett, GeekWire's Mike Lewis, News Tribune's Matt Driscoll. I'm Bill Radke. And the this week, the city of Seattle cleared away one of its biggest and most uh, persistent homeless encampments. Uh, city workers removed more than 50 tents and makeshift shelters. Erica, where did those people go? How many got offered a bed and where'd they go? Well, overall, so the city, this is at Woodland Park in Northwest Seattle, um, and the city has been working at that encampment for about five months. um, And over that entire period, they say that they gave 83 referrals into shelter. Most of those appeared to have happened, or, or a plurality of those appeared to have happened right before the encampment was removed. And, um, and so a lot of people went into tiny house villages um, and, but, you know, for the, for the sort of the entire 83 people, we don't actually know for sure at this point, whether they showed up to shelter, how many nights they stayed in shelter, which, you know, sort of what the outcomes were for all of those folks. That information is generally the kind of stuff that the city will, will tell you after the fact, but, um, all we know right now is that this, this number of people were referred And, uh, you know, what I have heard from talking to the Low Income Housing Institute is the folks that were referred into tiny house villages did generally go there. But, you know, it was sort of five months of effort to do a bunch of relationship building and, you know, creating lists of people and, and all this sort of advanced work. But it seems to me from my reporting that most of the actual moving people off site and getting them into shelter and that sort of thing happened at the very, very last minute. So it's a little different than other encampment removals um, that the city has done. It was supposed to be sort of a new approach to encampment removals where they would really work with people to find shelter that worked for them. But I, you know, I, I think that did happen to some extent, but I also think that it was kind of rushed at the last minute. Matt, how did Tacoma and Pierce County do it differently? Yeah, well, at first, and I don't mean to throw it off, but I, I have a question for Erica mm. because it kind of pertains to, to my response to how it's going down here in, in Tacoma and Pierce County. Is there, what's the official policy from from Seattle in terms of what encampments get cleared and, and why they get cleared? I mean, is that is that is that clear and transparent down here because uh, or up there because down here it, it's it's not so much. Yeah, I, I would say it's it's very much not. I mean, it, right now there is there is some prioritization scheme. The city council has been trying to get answers to that, um, like how encampments are being prioritized right now. But I mean, I think from observation, it's what you would expect. It's large encampments and it's ones that people complain about. But that is that is not like official city policy. That's just what you know any person can observe is happening. But I don't, I, I, you know, there is not a clear answer to that question right now because we've shifted admi- mayoral administrations and um, and they haven't really articulated that. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, so so down here, I mean, there's kind of in the background. I mean, we've been having a, a kind of a long running debate about whether the city, and I'm talking specifically about Tacoma, should enact a ban a ban on quote unquote camping on public pri- uh, property. And, and right now, the the elected leadership in, in Tacoma has basically tabled that conversation, saying that you know there's not enough shelter available, and, and it's not it's not a step we need to take at, at this point. Although I think there is kind of a, a pretty clear uh, uh, desire to do something about uh, encampments on public process, uh, uh, property. But I mean, that being said, what we're seeing is, and I checked on the numbers on this yesterday, so far this year, uh, there have been six encampment clearings with the seventh that has been posted and notified, which means it'll happen shortly. In all of last year, there were seven. So we're you know less than halfway through the year. 
uh, already, you know, we're, we're more than double the pace, I guess. Uh, and in 2020, uh, I believe there were two encampment clearings, although don't quote me on that, but it was, it was very low. But of course, there were some factors in that related to the pandemic where they actually basically decided they weren't going to do any encampment and clearings because of the, the, the public health necessity of, of not moving people around and keeping people uh, separated and that sort of thing. But the bottom line in all that is, uh, you know, we don't have a clear policy on, I mean, the city says its policy hasn't changed. They respond to encampments on an as-needed basis. And when issues arise, uh, they reserve the right to uh, post notice and clear them. Um, from a city council level, we're grappling with, uh, you know, how do we create shelter? The city has created more than 350 new shelter beds since 2020. But of course, the other thing we know about that is, you know, a, a cot at the Shiloh Baptist Church or a you know, uh, opening up some basement somewhere isn't a, you know, that's not a fit for a lot of people. So when they say they've, you know, created shelter beds, we have to ask the question of, you know, how accessible and applicable are really are those to, to folks who are experiencing homelessness. Uh, but, you know, so we're still grappling with those issues. But from a from a response standpoint, it's very clear that we've increased our uh, clearing of encampments over the last year. And I expect that to continue just because, uh, you know, much like the conversation we had around crime earlier, uh, you know, the, the tenor from, from, from the public and uh, just, uh, a, a, you know, there's a lot of frustration over, uh, you know, large encampments, specifically downtown. Uh, you know, you hear a lot from businesses, you hear a lot from residents. And I think the city's feeling that pressure and politically it's not kind of hasn't decided how it's going to navigate that yet. Um, but from a, from an unspoken policy level, it's clear we're, we're increasing our, our, uh, our, our clearing of encampments, at least, at least so far this year. And I know that Portland settled a lawsuit this week over uh, sweeps of homeless encampments. Erica, does that have any bearing on what Seattle does? I mean, I think it might down the road. The the lawsuit essentially, or the settlement essentially, said it set some some parameters around you know when they can care, clear encampments and when they can't and where. And it also set some requirements on storage of people's stuff. One of the big complaints that you hear all the time in Seattle and probably everywhere is that when the city goes out and sweeps encampments, they throw away people's stuff. They throw away things like IDs, medication, you know, small items, wallets, uh, cell phones, that are very hard to replace and that, you know, take a long time to replace and people don't get them back. So is that the process, they, Erica? Do they just chuck them? I mean, yes, yeah. that is. I mean, the city would probably disagree with that, but I've talked to many, many people, um, both people who've had their stuff thrown away and, you know, social service workers who talk about this being this incredibly you know, endemic problem, um, you know, that, yeah, people, people lose IDs all the time. Uh, they lose transit passes. It's, and, and cell phones are also a really big problem because, you know, when people are getting referrals to shelter or people are waiting for them, you, you can't get into shelter unless you're reachable. And a lot of time the cell phone is the only way you're reachable. So, so it could have some impacts, you know, if it, uh, if it sort of, if a similar case were brought here, one of the things that the city does is it sweeps a lot of encampments that are smaller and not in parks. And the Portland settlement says, you know, basically you can you can remove encampments if they're in you know spaces the public uses like public parks. But we have encampments in the Soto neighborhood. So an industrial area. There's an encampment that's always being swept up on off Aurora behind Bill Pierre Ford near L.A. Fitness. And I think, you know, th those aren't near schools. They're not near you know, a lot of places where a lot of people are gathering. And I think those kind of sweeps could be called into question if we had a similar standard. Hmm. 
Bill, I've got a question for both uh, Erica and Matt uh, in their respective cities. Do 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 the cities do to either Tacoma or Seattle? Do they do anything to incentivize the private property owners to actually use their property, or is that something that is you have to step up and volunteer? Let's say you're a church or a church group uh, to offer something, or is there some sort of thing like we'll give you a break, we'll provide porta potties, we'll do a variety, we'll bring services? I mean, is there anything that they do to work with people to get them to? Because I know that you wrote Matt about the hundred and some odd folks who are living in vehicles and there's 30 official safe spots in Tacoma to park your vehicle. I mean, what are they doing in that regard? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting dynamic. So they're, they're kind Matt, of we got about a minute for this answer because we're getting toward the end of the show. So in fair, okay. so, so that you know, so the city of Tacoma has been working with faith-based organizations and nonprofits for, for some time now trying to facilitate stuff like that. They do provide uh, porta potties, hand washing, trash, that sort of thing. Uh, countywide, uh, kind of similarly on the safe parking front, they've been trying to promote that, but it's a very small program, uh, only apl- applicable to churches. Uh, the county council recently tried to expand that to more than churches, and the Republican uh, county executive vetoed that matter. So there's a debate going on about how big those programs can be, but uh, we're trying. And I'll just answer really quickly. There are not a lot of incentives in Seattle. And for vehicle residents, there's only about a million and a half dollars in the budget to do safe lots, which is not nearly enough. You know, as many as half of Seattle's homeless population is living in their vehicles. Thank you. Good question. Good information. Well, I just summed up week in review. Good questions. Good information. We're about at the end of the show. I always leave some room for something hopeful, something upbeat, something Did anything make you smile this week besides the frigid weather. I kind of smile at the rain, honestly, to be to be honest with you. But, uh, what about you? In the spirit of being brief, um, I yes. will just say quickly that I am excited by the news that Elon Musk um, is maybe, probably, possibly not buying Twitter. What's on? Is um, it, it's on hold? Is that the latest? It's. I mean, it's. Who knows? Okay. I mean, it could have all been a stunt from the beginning, as mm. far as I'm concerned. Um, but yes, it, it, he tweeted musk tweeted like in the pre-dawn hours that it's on hold because he wants to find out more about how many of the uh of the accounts are bots and fake accounts right right so hopefully he will he will keep that that make that hold permanent anything else uh, making the corners of your mouth go up mike or matt i got one small thing super small very narrow i just read this morning that uh my Chemical Romance has a new song out. I really liked that band back in the day. I don't think they've produced any music since 2014. And uh, the new song is called uh, Foundations of Decay. I'm not being paid for this endorsement, uh-huh. uh, but uh, but it's terrific and I'm happy about it. We're covering the Foundations of Decay regularly here on KOW. Exactly. But anything ha- even happier than that, than the Foundations of Decay, Matt? Bill, I got to tell you, this is the part of the show that freaks me out the most. I rack my brain every oh. time I come on trying to find something that's making me happy. Uh, but all I can come up with right now is our, our seven-year-old's heading to her uh, first Girl Scout camp tomorrow, which means uh, we've got to wake up early and take her there. But she's really excited about it. So oh. uh, that, that's the stuff that makes me happy. Well, enjoy checking for lice and enjoy uh, uh, youngster. Enjoy camp. Um, that that sounds fun. I want to thank my panelists. That's uh, Matt Driscoll, columnist, opinion editor, News Tribune. Public editor, a public cola editor and publisher, Erica Barnett. GeekWire contributing editor and Cairo contributor, Mike Lewis. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Bill. Thank you, Bill. Great Thank to see you. you. The show's produced by Kevin Kniestet, social media and live streaming by Juan Pablo Chiquiza and Tio Popescu. 
Bernard Ouellette's on the board, and I want to remind you about our 70th birthday, KOW's 70th anniversary celebration on Sunday at 3 o'clock, this Sunday at Town Hall. Uh, we're going to have a live taping of Soundside, and, uh, and we're just generally going to have some fun at Town Hall. So go to KUOW events and find out how you can get your tickets. KUOW.org slash events. And we'll see you Sunday at Town Hall for our 70th.